I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we start with a book discussion. Ora Zekely and Peter Krause about their new book, Stories from the Field, A Guide to Navigating Fieldwork in Political Science. We also talked to Ahmed Izzedin Mohammed of Columbia University and Harvard's Middle East Initiative about his new article on government spending during Ramadan. Finally, we talked to Adil Al-Muwafiq of the Yemen Policy Center about the current ceasefire in Yemen and what to look for in the future. Thank you so much for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's book segment, we're joined by Peter Krause of Boston College, Nora Zekley of Clark University, uh, to talk about their book, Stories from the Field, just out with Columbia University Press. Uh, Peter, Ora, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Mark. So Great this is here, just Mark. a fascinating concept for a book. I was really, I was really happy to be able to be a, a small part of it. Um, where did the idea for the book come from? And what's the main contribution as you guys see it? So a couple of years ago at the Northeast Middle East Politics Working Group, that is, that is a very long acronym for a workshop, uh, annual meeting, a bunch of us were sitting around after lunch, as one does at these workshops, catching up with our friends. And um, we got to talking about our experiences doing field research, you know, for the stuff we were working on then and that we were presenting at this workshop, field work we'd done in the past, um, talking about the you know, like the stuff that we learned from like hard experiences, funny stuff that had happened to us while we were doing field work. And, you know, Peter and I were walking back from lunch together and found ourselves thinking like, somebody should write this stuff down. Like these stories are genuinely valuable. We all have these conversations with our grad students um, or in my case with other people's grad students, cause I, I, I don't have them myself. Um, we talk to our undergrads, we have conversations with our friends, but this stuff happens in these sort of, um, I don't know, like these one-on-one -on -one or in these like small group conversations, which are wonderful and a really important part of our discipline. Um, but we don't really do it in this sort of like formalized way. And what struck us as being so useful about sitting around and like swapping stories in this like informal kind of fun way is that it's much easier to acknowledge the stuff that went wrong, uh, to talk about the stuff that did not go as we had planned it to, um, the the elements of field work that sometimes go like pretty spectacularly off the rails, and to acknowledge that that happens to everyone, um, including people you know who we often think of as being uh, you know very accomplished researchers who we sort of assume like never have anything go wrong with their research. And you know when you're sitting around, especially as a junior scholar, listening to people you really admire acknowledging the stuff that was hard for them about their research, there's something at least for me that's like very reassuring about that. Um, and so the idea behind this book was, let's find a way to present those conversations, that learning, that acknowledgement of um, the, the sometimes unacknowledged stuff that's really wonderful and difficult and sometimes very funny mm -hmm. about the experience of doing field work in our discipline. Yeah, and to build on that, you know, I think that we really wanted to focus on stories because I think, you know, there are other fields in which storytelling is, is seen as kind of a legit, you know, academic publication. But in political science, to be honest, you know, we write in this very formal way, bottom line up front, et cetera. And I think that that lends itself well when the purpose of your research, your publication is outcome. But in our case, of course, the focus is process. And so we wanted to have 
all these contributors write in a kind of a storytelling format where the listener kind of learns along the way with the researcher. You understand the uncertainty that comes with the research process, and it allows individuals to kind of share lessons about logistics, about ethics, about the challenges they faced in the field and how they overcame them. And again, this is how we learn so much from each other, as Aura said, whether from our advisors or from our colleagues. And yet our publications oftentimes, at least until recently, kind of hid this stuff in the background, instead just presented these nicely formatted questions with these perfectly found pieces of evidence. And of course, field research is often not conducted in that way. And so we wanted the book to represent that, but also to grapple with, you know, all of these issues about how best to do field work, especially amidst some of the challenges that, you know, we face now. Um, how do you deal with some of the ethical challenges of, of doing field research with some of its, you know, sorted history? And so we wanted the book to hit these, you know, issues from a variety of angles. And that's the product we have here. So you have you have over 40 chapters. Uh, many of them are they're, they're all quite short. Um, 42. 42, to be precise. Um, and uh, and they're drawn not just from the Middle East, but, you know, kind of globally and from a wide range of different kind of research contexts. How is that to kind of look at how these kinds of things that we might experience in the Middle East playing out kind of in this broader comparative context? Yeah, so I mean, Ora and I both, you know, being researchers of Middle East politics had to kind of hold ourselves back a bit when we were planning the volume, because not only do we value, but we know so many other scholars of Middle East. So I, I did a count, I think, depending on how you count it, it's maybe 10 or 11 other scholars of Middle East. So Middle East is well represented in this book, but yes, we did is. not want this to just be a field research in the Middle East volume. And right. so we made sure and we mapped out quite extensively to have people be your contributors from all regions of the world, different points in their academic career. We have graduate students, we have senior faculty, uh, people of different identity backgrounds, gender, et cetera, because we want, you know, we felt like that stuff matters, especially if we're grappling with issues of positionality, which plays a key role in a number of the chapters that we have in the volume. And so I think that people listening to this podcast who have backgrounds in the Middle East will find chapters that focus on, you know, Lebanon and Syria and, you know, all these various parts of the Middle East and some of the societies and cultures there. But at the same time, you can still learn lessons from people who are doing, you know, ethnography in Ukraine or uh, field experiments in Mali or, you know, grappling with issues of research access in Colombia and all of that's in there. And so I think the book has a combination of regional focuses. So there are some particular lessons perhaps for certain areas, but also kind of these general lessons about, you know, when do I accept research funding and what does that do to, you know, my reputation in the field or these broader issues that I think all of us grapple with. Yeah, I think one of the things that really, uh, came through for me, which, you know, it's like a thing I knew about political science, but after working on this book, it was, it was very clear to me in, in what felt like a really positive way is what a big tent we are, that um, there's this enormous range of in, like research methodologies and questions and like the stuff that people are interested in and how they got there, which is reflected in this book in a way that I hope is like fairly representative of the diversity within our discipline. Um, I think we did we did end up with a slightly Middle East heavy book, and I think uh, part of that is because we really didn't um, we didn't give our contributors much guidance, uh, except insofar as we said, "Tell us a good story," you know, like tell us something um, that tell us a story about something that that happened to you while you're doing field research, something that you learned, something that um, you know you think is uh, profoundly true about the enterprise of field work. And we didn't really tell people like, you know, it has to be your, your project that you did in, you know, Poland, not your pro, you know, your project that you did in Burkina Faso, right? Like we, we really like let people pick the stories that were most meaningful to them. Uh, 
which I think contributes to the richness of the book overall. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that we approached it that way, mm -hmm. but it, it does mean, I think we ended up with like four chapters on Lebanon, um, which was not intentional, although one of them is mine. So I guess in that sense it was intentional. So actually, why don't we talk about some of the chapters and maybe, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the, some of the stories that uh, you ended up being able to include in this volume. Um, you know, just which ones jumped out to you? So, okay. You yes. Know, so yeah, Mark, I would say there are a few. So first, I mean, I think Ora said it well that uh, it's kind of a bottom-up methods book, right? So we gave people instructions in terms of these broader themes, but we wanted them to talk about their personal experience. And I think we got a lot of really great generalizable lessons. So just to name a couple, um, you know, we had um, Ian Lustig, who writes the very first, you know, chapter in the volume talking about fieldwork and emotions. And again, something that we don't talk as much about in kind of this, you know, quote unquote, rational political science, you know, field that many of us seem to think we're part of, but obviously emotions play a key role, not only in terms of how you experience learning, but also how people interact with you, um, how you, you know, analyze and understand a culture or society. And so he writes a fascinating chapter about the role of emotions in field research. Uh, Wendy Perlman writes an excellent chapter on field being. And I think so much of us think about field research as being kind of instrumental time in the field where we're going to gather data to, you know, do as many interviews as possible. And she talks about, you know, kind of non-instrumental time in the field, whether as an undergrad or even as a graduate student or, or faculty member, where you're just kind of being in an area and you're not doing it for kind of this explicit purpose. But in some sense, that actually makes you, you know, a better um, analyst and someone who understands and interacts with, you know, kind of a field site or the people around you. And so it's a fascinating chapter. Um, and then final one I'll mention is, you know, Amani Jamal talks a lot about how, you know, we're in this era of big data where it's, you know, kind of capturing all this information and statistics, but she stressed is how it's so important to kind of build networks as an academic and that field research is a big part of that because a lot of people's you know academic networks include individuals who are not from kind of their home city or country and so building those networks is important not just for your own advancement as a scholar but in terms of the mission of what supposedly political science should be about which is greater understanding of the world improving connections across different you know academic disciplines and in regions and otherwise so whether it's doing collaborative field research which is you know something great that I think is increasing over time or Otherwise, there's a lot of chapters in here that hit on those. And I could keep going, but maybe Aura can jump in with some others. You know, one of the chapters that I've been sort of coming back to in my mind a lot over the last couple of weeks, maybe unsurprisingly, is Keith Darden's chapter about doing research in Ukraine. Uh, he has this amazing story about doing research in the lead up to the, the 2010 elections, where he was having a hard time getting people to... Um, to agree to interviews because of course like there's real concern about you know like being informed on with regard to your your voter preferences so um what he hit on was uh the strategy of working as an informal cab driver because it really reassured people that like yes this was truly random like they had flagged him down on like a country road somewhere he hadn't like shown up at their door he like genuinely did not know who these people were and he said that that led to really great conversations um which uh, is a fascinating, fascinating strategy. Uh, I cannot imagine any circumstances under which I would be willing to do that in like Egypt uh, or Lebanon. I refuse to drive uh, in Egypt and uh, would probably not want to like brave like Beirut's traffic while trying to while trying to do research in the front seat of a car. But um, that's a chapter that I've I've thought a lot about over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I also love Zoe Marx's chapter about um, cooking 
with some of her interview participants in Sierra Leone. I love Rich Nielsen's story about uh, finding the ability to recite Quran to be uh, a way of like breaking the ice and getting to know people when he was doing research in Cairo. Um, I I could go I could go on. Um, it seems like a, I mean a lot of the chapters uh, or a lot of the stories I think emphasize something which I think we all know as experienced researchers, but I think as you said earlier, uh, is maybe hard for um, like graduate students uh, to connect to understand because they're so focused on research design and and like the perfect method and everything. And so just that, that adaptability to conditions in the field seems to me to be one of the big lessons and you see that across a lot of the chapters. Yeah, that's, um, you know, Amani Jamal's chapter starts with this like to me, at least really harrowing story of her entire field research team getting arrested in Jordan. Um, but her chapter is really about how she solved that problem, right? How she adapted to something going wrong. We have a, you know, Kristen Mikulich's chapter uh, features a, a, like a military coup in Mali that like happens while she's doing her research. Um, there are a lot of stories in this book, which are, you know, from, from one perspective about things going wrong and problem solving, but but which also highlight the ways in which uh, a sudden change on the ground, yes, can change what you're what you're able to do, but can also change your research question, right? Because of course, our enterprise right. as political scientists is to study the world as it is. We don't get like comfortable lab conditions. We cannot, you know, put a couple of world leaders um, in a giant terrarium somewhere uh, and see if they react differently to like red M and M's versus green M and M's. Um, and so adaptability and like, you know, sort of like learning to, to adjust when conditions on the ground change is an important part of field work, but it's also like those conditions on the ground changing are the very thing which we are studying. And I think that's something that, that really comes through as a core insight in a lot of chapters. Yeah, and to build on that, you know, we have a couple chapters that explicitly kind of state this, right? So Nadia Hajj has a chapter about how she went in thinking she was going to kind of ask certain questions, but in the course of, you know, interviewing individuals, it kind of changed her, you know, focus. Same with Daniel Posner, who talked about he came in thinking, okay, this was the big debate acad academics are having. And then actually interacting with people in the societies he's, you know, researching, realized, okay, people aren't talking that way or asking that question at all. They care about something else. And so he totally changed his project. So you're right, Mark, that I think that's one of the key lessons. And if I may, you know, to some extent, your chapter touches on this. You talk about how things change. And so the way that we interview people or collect data or whatnot, you know, we have to be cognizant of the fact that the situation on the ground can change, which can have, you know, safety implications, political implications. So not necessarily to, to turn the question on you, but could you say maybe a little about your chapter and your thoughts on how this relates to it? No, it's very much the same thing, right? It, it's like you're in the middle of this kind of rapidly uh, evolving political situation and you tend to get caught up in it. And all the people you're interviewing are all caught up in that moment of enthusiasm. And they'll often say and do things that, um, you know, they, they seem totally appropriate at the time. But then a year later, when politics have changed completely, that might not actually be something which is politically safe anymore. And then it can come back and haunt them dramatically. Um, and we've seen this in Egypt in particular. That's what I wrote about in my chapter. Um, but it's not just limited to Egypt. It's any place where, you know, the how we think about what is ethical fieldwork um, has to go beyond simply, you know, you know, the checking off the IRB boxes and, you know, and you know, kind of thinking about what people feel safe with in the moment. Yeah, I think, yeah, totally. you know, 
that ended up being um, one of the the really solid through lines in the book is uh, questions about ethics. Mm-hmm. And and again, we didn't um, we didn't like tell people, okay, you five are writing about ethics, but that we ended up with this really interesting conversation uh, happening within the volume about ethical questions and. You know, in some cases, people were asking the same question and like with a lot of sincerity coming up with different answers, which was really fascinating. Um, and, you know, not like radically different answers, but like, you know, approaching the same ethical questions um, from the perspective of like working in different parts of the world or using different methodologies. And uh, that felt like a really productive conversation. Um, that that happened in the book and also in in our own podcast where we had a an episode on ethics but but also where like we found ourselves just talking about ethics a lot yeah and some great chapters to highlight there so you know erica chenoweth wrote an excellent chapter talking about ethical challenges and actually includes this kind of list of questions that she asks herself and maybe suggests other researchers ask themselves about you know what is the purpose of your research what audience are you trying to serve things that i think many of us over time develop answers to but maybe when we're starting out we don't have a perfectly clear idea of but you know to the extent you can even think about those things you know in depth before you do field research that can be very helpful and then you know other questions and people grappling with this stuff carla carla abdo wrote a great chapter about interviewing sex traffickers, which is obviously an incredibly fraught, um, you know, logistical and ethical challenge. But I think that she talks about how to do it in a way that protects her safety, protects the safety of the people who are involved here. Um, and it's created some great research, but obviously it's it's quite a challenging journey to conduct field research like that. And so chapters like hers go into how you grapple with those issues. You know, I think there is also... Um like kind of a meta ethical question, I guess, uh, for me and Peter, as we were putting this together, which was like, how do we want to approach a collection of stories about fieldwork such that we are doing this ethically? And something that was really important to us uh, was that this was not going to be like a book of macho one-upmanship, right? That we were not interested in uh, glorifying um, dangerous fieldwork or particularly fieldwork that endangers the people that you're working with that we were not interested in glossing over the serious and important ethical questions that we all have to ask ourselves, that this was not like, you know, a collection of people, um, you know, sitting around telling stories about like smash and grab field work in ways that like dehumanized the people that they were, that they were uh, doing research with. Um, That I think was our starting ethical commitment, um, which I think Peter, that that feels right. Yeah. Like, I think I'm accurately characterizing some of our early conversations. Yeah, I think so. You know, we wanted the book to generally, you know, address these issues and do so from, you know, a strong ethical standpoint. I'd say, you know, the other side of that, though, is that we didn't start by saying, okay, here are all of our conclusions about how to do good ethical fieldwork. And again, there's value to that. There's a lot of good books out there that kind of take a stance and say, this is exactly kind of the way to do things. And we were a little looser in the sense of saying, we know people do research from a variety of perspectives and with a variety of methods. And so we wanted this book in many ways to be a conversation where we would have people talk about their different approaches, you know, generally within the realm of what we would consider to be, you know, acceptable field research, but that would maybe have some differences logistically 
or on some of these choices because we think that you know just to hide this conversation or to have kind of a top-down methods book is, is helpful but we wanted to do this kind of bottom-up approach where we brought the conversation to the table and then you know again i don't agree with every single thing in the book or every single approach is not mine but i can use that with my students to teach about different ways to do it and how approaches have been before and how things evolve and i think that that's helpful one of the things which is interesting also is that it's not just about exotic field research. Uh, you know, Zach Mampili has a really interesting point about how the field is everywhere now. Um, and we're constantly engaged in research, uh, even when we're just sitting at our desks. Or you have a couple of chapters, people uh, who are working in archives and, um, you know, kind of going through similar type things uh, there. So maybe talk about that a little bit and how you conceptualized the field research part of the book's focus. Yeah, so another sort of starting point for us as we were putting this together was that we definitely did not want to frame the conversation as North American researchers going off to the exotic other, uh, collecting data and then coming back with it, right? Like sort of frame this relationship between uh, the world that researchers live in and the world in which they do research. Uh, A is not actually how any of this works and B can have some really like unpleasant kind of orientalist implications. Um, so what, so one way that we approached this, right, was we wanted to think very broadly about um, what field work looks like, where the field is for people. For some people, that's uh, their own backyard uh, or city block. Uh, for other people, it's archival research. Uh, for some people, it's research in an online space. And we also tried to provide a lot of, um, we tried to have like sort of a, a broad inclusivity in terms of where people are working, right? Like where is your, where is your university located? And also uh, where do you think of yourself as being from? We all answer the question, where are you from differently? That can be like a longer or shorter answer for many of us, but uh, we, we tried to have a lot of variation in terms of what people's relationship to their field site looks like. Um, both in terms of you know who the researcher thinks of themselves as being and where their field site is. Peter? Yeah, and I think that, you know, we also explicitly made some choices about, you know, inviting folks to, you know, kind of counteract what Aura is saying, which is, look, we are American academics who study the Middle East, and we do have a number of people in the volume who, who fit that profile. But, you know, we kind of made sure to say, okay, we want some individuals who are doing field research, as Aura is saying, quote unquote, in the neighborhoods where they live or where they grew up. Or also we have, you know, a, a, a British individual academic um, who does research on America. So it's not just kind of America outwards it's also outside inwards and in your own you know community and you know i think that that's really valuable as not only a model of how good field research can be done but also again to to address some of the issues that or raised before which we don't want this book to reinforce because again you know like we want to think about our discipline as it is right and and what that means is acknowledging the full range of scholars who are who we are very lucky to have in our discipline and to try to make the conversation as broad and inclusive and representative as we can. So, you know, building off of that, one of the issues that kind of runs through the volume, and you actually have a whole section built around it, is the question of kind of the identity issues that people bring to the table when they're researching and how that actually can shape your research, but also the, the way that the research can shape you. 
Yeah, there's a lot of great examples of that. You know, we have Enza Han, um, who is Han Chinese, kind of talking about doing research in China, but also in kind of Western China with, China with the Uyghurs and in Mongolia, and talking about how he's being perceived differently in those areas and having different levels of access to, you know, interviewing people or, or doing good field research. Um, my chapter is in this section as well, and I had a somewhat similar experience. You know, I my name is Peter Kraus. Uh, when I go to Israel, a lot of people say Kraus is a Jewish name. No, and, you know, I guess it is in some sense but I'm not Jewish. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I am Irish American. Um, I did three of my fieldwork cases for my book on the Middle East, but I had one non-Middle Eastern case, which was Northern Ireland. And when I went there, you know, I was very easily welcomed into that community in a way that maybe took me many months or more living in uh, Israeli and Palestinian communities to kind of feel welcomed in the same way. And so absolutely, you know, my identity and my family background and my language, all of those things made a difference in terms of how I was perceived and how I was welcomed and obviously the impact that had on how I perceived the community around me and the politics around me and, you know, the quote unquote access or things that I understood from that. So I think that that's, those are great examples. I also think, you know, Melissa Nobles wrote a great chapter um, about studying Brazil as kind of a racial democracy. And, you know, and she talks about, you know, she's a black American. And so she's going there. And on one sense, she's, you know, on a Ford fellowship and, you know, this, you know, academic, but at the same time, she's sometimes treated in different ways based on how she's perceived in terms of her uh, race inside of that community. And so, kind of learns a lot of lessons about whether Brazil really is a true, you know, racial democracy. And so you're right that this kind of issues of positionality and how you're perceived in the field play a big role here. And, you know, we have many chapters that make it explicit. Um, or I don't know if you have other examples you want to bring up. Well, I, I actually wanted to ask about one other aspect of your chapter, Peter, which is your role as a Boston College professor when you were doing research in Northern Ireland, which I thought was a really interesting part of your chapter, right? Because we don't always think of our academic affiliations as being a kind of identity. And yet, it's a big part of it. You're right. And so, yeah, I do talk a bit in my chapter about kind of, you know, think identities that you're born with versus those that you kind of choose, right? So as, as field researchers, we often have decisions about affiliations in the field, right? Should I just be independent? Should I affiliate with this local, you know, NGO or this academic institution? Because that can open doors, but it can also potentially close doors because now you are seemingly affiliated with this, you know, potential approach or these individuals or otherwise. So yeah, in my case, you know, I'm a, you know, professor at Boston College, before my time at Boston College, there was this project that unfortunately has become a bit infamous where they did an oral history of former members of Republican um, and kind of unionist um, or loyalist militias in Northern Ireland with the idea that, okay, they'll do all these interviews with people who haven't talked before about being militants, but they won't publish them or release them until they're dead. But what happened is, of course, they released some of them as a book and as a documentary when a couple of these guys had died, but the rest had not. And so the Northern Irish uh, Justice Department then started to, you know, subpoena these tapes, and it became a whole kerfuffle with not just, you know, these individuals, but with BC, with, you know, the governments of America, Ireland, Britain, etc. And so, yeah, I think that when I then went to live in Belfast and said, you know, I'm a professor from Boston, in college who would like to talk to you about these time periods, it certainly was a challenge because as I mentioned in the, in the book, um, right when I was coming in the cab from the airport without even telling the cab driver where I was from, he goes, hey, how about those Boston College tapes? And I was like, oh man, this is this is quite widespread here. I was walking on the Falls Road from doing an interview and someone had spray painted Boston College touts and touts means informer. So again, I had a big decision there about, you know, I am a MIT affiliate as well. I thought briefly, oh, maybe for my own safety or otherwise I could kind of hide that affiliation but I decided, no, you know, I need to be, transparency is one of the key 
key parts, of course, of doing field research. You owe it to the people you're interacting with for them to know who you are and what the product is you're trying to create and having them hopefully play a, a role in that. So I was very upfront about being from Boston College, though, of course, not being involved with that, um, that you know, previous project. And actually, I found people still willing and open to talk with me. The only exception was there were individuals from one group who wanted all of their names to be anonymous, which is not that strange in the line of work that I do in terms of who I talk to. But ultimately, it was a lesson. It was also a lesson in how you know, as researchers, we have an ethical responsibility, not just to the people we're interacting with, but also to future researchers, right? Because you can quote unquote, spoil the field mm -hmm. if you act in an unethical way and make it difficult for others who come after you to try to interact with that community, but also of course, for that community itself to deal with the repercussions of things that you don't do correctly. So I think that that was a real lesson that I learned from that experience. And I write about that in my chapter. One last question, um, you know, so for like, uh, junior scholars who are just starting out with their field research, you know, what, what is like the one big thing that you hope that they would take away uh, from this volume? Uh, that's a great question, because in part, that's that's kind of who this volume is for, right? That's who we were thinking about when when we decided to put the volume together. And I, I will answer your question by cheating and saying, actually, I think there are two big things. <laughs> the first is, um, all of the books, if I'm like talking to like, you know, an imaginary first year PhD student, um, all of the books that you're going to read in your seminars that you're going to think are amazing, all of the articles, you know, in APSR that you're going to read that you're going to think are amazing that look effortless. Every single one of those pieces of research has a backstory in, in the research process for for every single book article, all of the stuff that you know, is is brilliant and insightful. There's always been a moment where the researcher had something go wrong, where there was an interview they wanted that they didn't get, or um, their data collection process turned out to be like much more challenging than they thought it would be. Even if you can't see it in the book, it's there. It happened <laughs> to almost all of us. This stuff happens. Um, and so when you go out into the field or you, you know, get your hands on the data set that you wanted and you start doing your work um, and something goes wrong, uh, that's okay. That happens to all of us. That's normal. That's how all of this works. Um, you you know, just because something is is uh, proving difficult um, doesn't mean that you don't belong in this field. It doesn't mean that um, you know you are not a good researcher. You are. This stuff happens to all of us. So I think that's like the first thing that we really hoped that people would take away from this. The other contribution that I think is is quite useful is a lot of very good sort of practical advice. We have this section at the end called One Last Thing Before You Go, where we asked everybody, including you, Mark, uh, to contribute short pieces of advice, like one thing that, you know, they tell their students or they, you know, tell somebody who's going to do research in a part of the world where they work or in their home country for the first time. Um, and it's, you know, it's stuff like, uh, you know, sending thank you notes or, um, which is, you know, practical in some situations, not not in all, or I think what I wrote was wear comfortable shoes, um, right? Like, it, and, and mail your research materials to yourself because that can make crossing a border easier in some cases. Um, that sort of very practical advice gathered in one place, I think, can be very helpful. Again, it's not universally applicable, but um, you know, some of that stuff is what you get from like the conversation that you have with your advisor before you leave on your first field research trip. And so, getting to talk with like forty-two advisors. Um, we like to think of as being hopefully like a useful contribution. Hey, Peter. 
Yeah, to, to kind of echo some of those points. So first and foremost, as Aura is saying, you know, learn from others who have gone there before. And that was a practice that thankfully I, I followed before I went to, you know, Algeria or some of these other places where I literally just went and sought out people who had done field work in these spaces or who uh, were academics from these spaces. And, you know, there's so much that can be done before you're actually physically in a place, which I think is not only important for good research, but I think is important in terms of respecting the place you're going because, you know, you want to learn everything you possibly can uh, uh, it makes you make more informed decisions about how you structure your work and you know what type of person you are when you're there. So again, our book hopefully helps some of that because there's so many people you can learn from here. But I think that's a great thing to do just on an individual level. And again, hopefully, depending on how COVID goes, we have conferences like ISA and other things coming up where now you can physically seek people out and have these conversations. So I would recommend that. That sounds like I would say. <laughs> well, we'll see. I'm going to try to be at Nashville. Hopefully I'll see some others there soon. But in any case, um, I also think, you know, thinking long term is important. And I know this is really hard as a graduate student because everything is, you know, do anything possible to get that dissertation out. And that's everything. But, you know, the people who are the best scholars um, who do field research have, to me, really long term commitments and interactions with the communities and the people that they're, they're actually interacting with. Again, this is what Amani Jamal talked about, what Wendy Perlman talked about. And I think that that can be a challenge, but it's also the right way to go. Because when you start to think long-term, not as, okay, I'm going to go to this place, find out this information, fly home, and that's it. But instead saying, you know, I'm going to be a scholar of X region or, you know, X area or whatnot. And so this is the first of many, you know, hopefully trips or, you know, times in which I'm living in this space. Um, that changes how you approach people, that changes how you approach learning. And I think ultimately leads to a much deeper understanding and better, you know, collaborative connections um, with people in that area. Now, of course, you know, that presumes that you're going to have that ability. And of course, everyone doesn't have the ability to do field research, which can be expensive, et cetera. And, you know, presumes a long career. But I think the people who can do that often turn out to do the best work and, and honestly make the best contribution, not just to our field, but to kind of, you know, the communities that they're a part of. And that would be the final point I would say, which is, you know, just being a good citizen and, and you know, not practicing extractive research, which is something that we, yeah. we touch on in this volume and people bring up here is important. And so again, what does that look like in terms of how you contribute back to the the places or the societies that you're working in, I think it can take a lot of, of, of models, but whether it's, you know, working and doing collaborative research with other academics or grad students who are there and giving them credit in terms of the work, um, whether it's, you know, just being a good citizen in terms of the place that you're living. I mean, there's lots of ways that you can do this, but I think that that's something that hopefully happens in the sense that, you know, we try to think that we're good people. And so naturally that's how we would act, uh, especially in a space that maybe is not our home. But I think conscientiously thinking about that from the outset, maybe as part of your kind of research process, or at least part of your research plan um, can be a healthy way. And ultimately, I think will lead to a better and more enjoyable fieldwork experience. Final point on that, we do have a chapter in the book called Fieldwork for the Fieldwork Hater by Amelia Hoover Green, which I think is a great example of, of some of these lessons, right? Which is you won't always love fieldwork, but there's ways you can find to kind of work around that. And she talks about that. And so I think some of these things about your personal mental health, but also how you interact with others is often overlooked as part of your research plan, but is nonetheless very important. Well, it's really interesting, and you've done a real service to the field with this book. I thank you, Peter and Aura, for joining us. Thanks for having us, Mark. Thanks so much for having us, Mark. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Ahmed Ezzedine Mohammed, Columbia University, currently a fellow at the Middle East Initiative at Harvard University's Kennedy School, um, author of a new article, Political Budget Cycles in Autocracies, just published in Politics and Religion. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you. I'm very, uh, very glad to be here and uh, you know, talk about my article. So tell us about the article and what, what the major uh, argument and contribution is. So, so the idea of this article is trying to understand um, basically how political budget cycles could take place without elections. So I'm looking here at a different uh, occasion that I think has political significance, which is the religious season of Ramadan which I argue in Muslim societies is a very important event uh, that could actually bring serious concerns for some autocrats, particularly because it reveals information about the economic status quo, could also raise the potential for collective action. And so it uh, prompts the governments to expand their distribution uh, around Ramadan, which reflects on their uh, budget operations, basically leading to expansions of uh, expansion in government expenditure around that season. But specifically and more interestingly, um, that expansion is more likely to be observed after episodes of political contention. So basically the idea is that if this season is going, is going to add reputational pressures on the government to distribute, it's gonna, if, if it's going to raise the potential for collective action, then the government will be more incentivized to expand their welfare policies around that season, leading to these cycles. Uh, the interesting thing here is that I, I, look at the, I look at the case of Egypt to uh, just to basically test this argument, and I look at uh, different uh, regimes. So I look at Mubarak's regime and a Sisi regime right now, uh, and I basically find that both regimes have uh, similar. We observe the same patterns for both regimes, which is. Uh, the main conclusion here. I think this is really uh, interesting, uh, or important take on uh, on the literature. At, we tend to think of uh, you know uh, electoral cycles as the most important thing, but in a lot of regimes, elections are not the main concern for regimes. But in fact, collective action could pose another source of uh, threats. And uh, if there's a season that regulates this this threat, like Ramadan in this case, it could actually reflect on uh, how policymaking is uh, is regulated over the course of the year itself. So essentially, uh, it's about regime security and uh, finding ways to, you know, kind of respond to various kinds of either violent or nonviolent um, political challenges, especially from Islamists. Exactly. So uh, it's basically Islamist and could be more general. Uh, and the idea here is there are two types of threats that could emerge in Ramadan, or two types of concerns for the regime that could emerge. One is because of this, just a season of charity in general, uh, that, that it basically uh, people tend to interact more with economic information during that season. They start to learn more about levels of poverty, levels of inequality. In that process, you could learn more about government inefficiencies and failures to deliver. So I learn more about, oh, why there are so many people uh, poor now, and I'm, I'm going to pay my charity, but in, in, uh, I could also ask the question, why am I paying for this hospital? If the government should provide the hospital, why am I paying for these uh, people? So the government should provide for them instead. So that's the first, first channel. It's basically, uh, it could add the reputational cost of underperformance of the government in a way. The second is, there are a lot of congregations also that take place during that season. These congregations are very well attended. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, along with the potential political discontent, uh, potential economic discontent with the status quo, uh, this could be basically a dangerous combo in a way for the, for the government. And so uh, this adds another pressure, the threat of collective action. Now, if this, uh, the government might not be less, less concerned about this if, you know, things are going great and there is no uh, episode, previous episode of contention, but if there's already like potential unrest, and the, the season comes in, the government might be really concerned, and then they pump more money in that time, reflecting on their budgets. So that makes a, a lot of sense. Uh, so how did you go about studying this? Tell us about the data and how you analyzed it. 
so the data that I use for this analysis basically is uh, this is monthly budgetary uh, data. Uh, usually, when we, we tend to analyze political budget cycles, we focus on annual fluctuations. So this is one additional thing here is that I look at monthly fluctuation. This is very short-term fluctuations, which comes from the nature of the question itself. We're looking at uh, variations within the same year almost uh, and shifts around the Ramadan, the, the, the month itself. Uh, and I, I basically digitized this data from the, uh, the uh, monthly bulletins by the, the statistical monthly bulletins that are issued by the uh, Central Bank of Egypt. And I put, I put this data together, match it with uh, uh, collective action data from the Akli uh, data set. And uh, I basically uh, use uh, just basic uh, autoregressive OLS analysis to try to understand uh, the link between Ramadan and uh, growth in expenditure in general. But the nice thing also about working with this data is that it gives us a detailed account of uh, a detailed, uh, detailed uh, breakdown of the government expenditure. So we know exactly like what's the welfare expenditure, for example, on salaries or the purchase of goods and services. Two of the main things that uh, we think that uh, actually the government use, uh, the government expand on uh, in Ramadan. Uh, so I, I look at these three main outcomes. Uh, that's, the, that's the main uh, thing. And how uh, how public is this data that you were able to draw upon? What did you have to do in order to access it? And how did you deal with the um, the kind of off off the public record military expenditures? So uh, so that's that's uh, so this is basically mainly the data that's available, uh, and they are basically uh, reports that are issued every month. And you can take these reports and uh, they have tables, and you can extract the information, etc., and put data set together. Uh, the, uh, the, of course, the issue here is that there are there are parts of, uh, of the, part of the expenditure is unreported here. That's as you as you mentioned, and uh, I, I cannot I don't have account for that. So basically, I, I argue that what we observing, especially in the the, uh, the second period of CC regime 2014 on, this is an under this is basically a lower bound than what we might be observing in reality because uh, there is other there are other sources for for uh, for. Uh, for the government to fund its operations that are not necessarily budgetary. Uh, under, under Mubarak's regime, this tends to be uh, less the case. So like the budget is, is, is more likely to capture uh, really the, the change in expenditure. So well, that makes a lot of sense. So then, um, so what did you find then in the analysis? What are like the headline findings uh, that, uh, that this produced? So, so the main thing is that we find uh, first, well, there's no like really a huge uh, increase in expenditure. There is like there is a slight shift, but really the, the most interesting thing is that the increase in expenditure tend to be proportional to the level of contention uh, previous to Ramadan, the season of Ramadan itself. So, when Ramadan is preceded with an episode of contention, you see that there is an increase in double-digit expenditure, uh, increase in growth of expenditure. We find I find also that this growth is particularly in two welfare two uh, items. Uh, welfare in, uh, expenditure on salaries and expenditure on uh, uh, provision of goods, so, uh, per government purchases of, of service, goods and services, which is uh, reflects actually on the ground in the sense of that the governments, uh, both governments tend to, uh, both regimes tend to provide a lot of uh, uh, markets for subsidized products, and of course for these markets they need to, uh, you know, have this would reflect on the budget and in, in, on that the particular item. Uh, so these are the two, uh, the two, the two main findings. Uh, and, uh, and and generally, like uh, the other interesting thing also is that this is not a mechanical reaction to the season, right? So it's not like the Ramadan is here. You're going to you're going to observe a change in the budget. If there is no contention, we don't observe any change around Ramadan season. It's really when we observe a change, when we observe 
contention before that that we start to see these cycles, which which tells us that this is not a, a reaction to macroeconomic changes. It's really about it's a political strategy that tries to uh, contain a potential discontent around that that, that period. Now, beyond the uh, the statistical analysis and the numbers, had, were, were we able to find any evidence that the government is trying to take credit for this, that it's trying to actually get political benefits out of it? Yeah, so, so in fact, so find this a lot in the framing of these policies, how they are celebrated in the media. This is something you uh, that I don't uh, maybe get into as much in that article, but in, in my other work, I look more into like the framing of these policies, how the government tries to uh, basically emphasize not just its competency by showing that we are able to provide and we're able to give these these uh, these handouts out, uh, or these basically things out in Ramadan, but also the framing of tend to emphasize the moral and religious significance of this form of provision, distinguishing it from other forms of provision, maybe around the electoral season or around other times, uh, which uh, what I argue in other parts of my work is that this is like a dual, basically a reputational gain from these, this form of provision, something that is hard to find in other times, particularly capitalizing on the association between distribution in Ramadan and the religious norms of the season that basically urges Muslims to provide and, and, and give. And so the government can uh, use this, this time to signal these two qualities about its uh, about its, uh, its governance, and that it's a competent and it's also a religious and moral actor by providing that season and abiding by these norms. Now, this is also uh, beyond the scope of this article, but um, there's also, of course, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood that, tr that uh, traditionally try and do the same thing uh, in terms of you know, demonstrating their religious commitments and, and place in society and everything like that. Did you, have you found any interaction effects of, uh, between the, uh, the Brotherhood's uh, attempt to provide Ramadan and iftars and assistance and the like, and what the government is doing? So, so unfortunately, we don't have data that can tell us, right, what the Muslim Brotherhood is providing in that in that sense. Right. But in practice, we know from anecdotal evidence that they do actually uh, they used to at least used to uh, maybe less so after twenty fourteen, but before that, they used to provide these services around Ramadan, also extend all the way to Eid. I've personally seen this uh, stuff on the ground uh, a lot. So, uh, so this is like something that documented. However, we don't have like uh, concrete data that tells us who benefits from this. Uh, and, especially for that period of time. So I guess one last question then is about the broader implications of, uh, of the work. And, uh, you know, what does this lead us to want to start thinking about in terms of how governments and public policy are, you know, oriented around these types of issues? What do you think the biggest takeaways are? So I think one main thing is to think, uh, is to take, uh, cultural and religious factors seriously when we understand when understand economic policy making. So electoral seasons matter, elections matter, but we know also like, you know, democratic regimes, elections serve a different purpose from what we uh, think they serve in democratic regimes. And so when we look at their budgets, we have to think of what are the, what other sources of concern that these regimes face that they might actually shape their policy making. And I think here we need to go a bit deeper into the, the sources of legitimacy of these regimes. And if a regime lacks democratic legitimacy, it has few options left. Maybe performance, it has to show performance. It has to show also rely on some traditional form of authority uh, and legitimacy, like such, such as religion or culture. And here, this is basically the story, right? Because Ramadan could hit uh, the regime in these two particular sources of legitimacy. If you under-deliver in Ramadan, you're not just incompetent, but you're also immoral and not religious by not abiding by these norms, urging these governments to shape their policymaking around that, around that time. So I think that's the takeaway, is to basically to push more uh, to understand like, other sources of, uh, of 
the, of economic policy making, other explanations of economic policy making extends beyond the direct electoral competition, especially in these contexts. Uh, and I think this translates also into other contexts that are not necessarily the most, uh, beyond the Muslim world. Like we can look at religious, religious Christian societies in, in Africa, for example, and look at uh, maybe less so in the uh, secular developed, uh, you know, Western uh, democracies, but more so in still developing uh, poor and more religious societies. Uh, and, and there could be also more interesting dynamics when we talk about regimes that are more democratic versus less democratic, uh, how these religious norms affect economic policymaking and regulate the fiscal policymaking uh, is another area that we have not, uh, I think, done much to understand. Well, great. Thank you, Ahmed, for joining us and uh, for this really interesting article. Look forward to reading more of your work. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here and uh, hope you like it. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Hadil Amuafak, a research fellow with the Yemen Policy Center. Hadil, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Mark, for inviting me. So, this week, uh, we saw uh, a, a ceasefire announced in the ongoing Yemeni uh, war. Could you tell us a little bit about where did it come from and how significant do you think it is in terms of uh, shaping the trajectory of the conflict? Yeah, so the we have a truth right now that um, it has been announced by the office of the uh, UN Special Envoy to Yemen. And it's supposed to last for two months, uh, starting from you know uh, April, uh, which coincides with the beginning of Ramadan, which is a holy month for Muslims and for Yemenis as well. Um, it's a much uh, welcome uh, initiative, especially that um, there hasn't been a truce or a ceasefire in Yemen since uh, six years, I would say. Um, I'm talking about an, a national uh, you know, um, nationwide ceasefire. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it has been there for a few days now. Um, but as, as you know, it's, um, the, the, it's, it's, there are some obstacles that still need to be overcome to for the ceasefire or the truce to hold mm -hmm. and one of these things is the opening of all roads in Yemen uh, and specifically I would like to talk about the uh, city of Taz which has been sieged by the Houthis for uh, seven years now and unfortunately um, the you know the the city of Taz and the the, the roads in Taz uh, were not included in the truce so far. So people still have to spend four hours to cross a five kilometer distance between the city and another area in the city. Um, and, you know, we're also witnessing some uh, continued fighting and there are some escalation around the city of Madib, which has been a hot spot for, for escalation between the Houthis and the government forces uh, for the past couple of years. Um, and, you know, people are welcoming the truce because as I told you, it's a much needed truce. Uh, and, and there are like good signs of, you know, um, of collaboration uh, between the armed actors, for example, the government and uh, the coalition, the Saudi-led coalition have uh, allowed the some fuel ships to enter the Hudaydah port. 
um, which in the past have been uh, blocked from um, from 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 uh, entering uh, the port, uh, which has you know contributed to the fuel crisis. Um, this has eased somewhat the the fuel crisis in Yemen and the you know the significant prices. Um, but uh, it's also important to you know to keep in mind that this is not the only factor that is creating the fuel crisis. You also have the Houthis who are withholding you know fuel trucks in certain cities to you know to increase the the, the price of fuel in the in the black market. So you still need to take care of these aspects as well. Um, and you know there are fears that you know Houthis might take advantage of this truce to continue escalate the escalation in Madhab and you know uh, and, and hold you know territories there. And this fear or these concerns are also motivated by um, you know by previous uh, ceasefires uh, in Yemen, specifically the the Stockholm Stockholm Agreement that was uh, that that was established in 2018, which you know, which uh, one of the components was an, a ceasefire in Hodeida, um, which unfortunately, unfortunately, the Houthis were able to take advantage of to uh, you know to march towards Madhab, and you know, uh, so people are wary of 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 this, and we'll wait to see what kind of developments come out of this. And that's kind of a familiar dynamic in many civil wars that ceasefires just become opportunities to rearm and to get things back together for the next offensive. But you know, so in terms of the, the possible impact of the war um, and, and, and of its recurrence, you know, there, there's more to it than just the actual fighting. And, uh, you know, looking more broadly at you know, where Yemen is today and after all of these years of blockade and war and everything else, what do you think, uh, from your perspective, are some of the most important priorities, things which you know need to be taken looked at at least right now when there is this momentary truce? So I think one of the major is issues facing Yemen today is the you know uh, rapidly uh, deteriorating economic uh, conditions in the country. Um, this has been a major problem that the you know the peace process has not been able to to solve because they uh you know the office of the envoy along with the armed actors and the regional and international you know mediators they were focusing more on military and political matters and they have been you know overlooking the what yemenis really need which is you know to put food on the table to be able to afford food and you know fuel and to uh, you know, to to have a job, you know, to, and, and so um, I think, you know, it is really important to uh, focus on how to bring back livelihoods, um, those that have been impacted by the conflict, and, um, and one of the, you know, major issues to solve is, you know, the, the, the currency devaluation in Yemen and the issue of the, the you know, the divided central bank, and the fact that you know armed groups in Yemen militias are basically in control of important, uh, you know, state institutions, revenue, you know, generating institutions like ports, like you know, the gas uh, facilities, and so on. And so there needs to be a mechanism to ensure that you know the the the, the funds or the revenues that come are you know are you know 
that they are being paid towards public servants that have not been getting their salaries for the past, I don't know, four or five years, I guess. Um, so there is a real issue here uh, that needs to be solved. Um, and, and also, there's, there's nothing, I mean, I'm sorry, and there's nothing really in the text of the agreement to address the central bank or these other types of issues, or is there? So right now, in this truce, I'm not sure about the, the text, and this is one of the problems with uh, any truces or any ceasefires in the country, in fact, is, is the lack of clarity or transparency about what has been agreed upon. Uh, and in fact, you know, civil society usually gets the news about an, a ceasefire or an, a truce uh, when it's announced publicly, you know, they don't have even the chance to uh, contribute to the conversation or right. even to know the details of, you know, these agreements, which is a big problem if you want to put pressure on, you know, conflict actors to kind of abide by the uh, these agreements. Um, so, yeah, um, and, and, and I just wanted to talk also about another important impact of this conflict, which is, the, you know, the 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 human rights conditions are extremely deteriorating, you know, and, and the problem is that we have no means to ensure accountability for all of the human rights violations and war crimes that have been committed by all armed actors. And this is really a big issue because you have all of these grievances that are being generated by the conflict, yet people don't find any avenues to solve or address these uh, grievances, and so they turn to violence. And so you are really stuck in this cycle of endless violence, um, which, you know, yeah. It seems like that was almost built into the original uh, GCC agreement um, over the fate of Ali Abdullah Saleh. Yes, that was absolutely one of the things that contributed to this climate of impunity in Yemen. And unfortunately, uh, since the conflict started, nobody has been addressing, you know, human rights violations or uh, because it's a contentious issue and the Office of the Envoy is trying to avoid these conversations with the armed actors, unfortunately, to the, you know, uh, which is, is, is not in the best interest of Yemenis, uh, unfortunately. And, you know, we had a chance in 2017 to, uh, with the uh, UN team, UN investigators team, the eminent, uh, the group of eminent ex uh, experts to Yemen, who were investigating war crimes and human rights violations, and you know they were sent by the UN Human Security uh, Human Rights Council. Sorry, um, but unfortunately, because of the pressure from Saudi Arabia, um, the you know the the group they the UN Human Rights Council did not renew the mandate of this group, which was the sole international and independent investigative mechanism of human rights violations in Yemen. Um, and, and we lost that now, unfortunately. Now, one other big area that uh, you've done some research on and published some pieces about is uh, the environmental impact of the war and kind of the broader effects of climate change at a time when you're already facing all of these problems of you know, the economy and hunger and, and deprivation and the like. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, unfortunately, the environment, especially in a protracted conflict like in Yemen, you know, people tend to focus on military and, you know, political aspects, as I, I mentioned, but, you know, especially the environment gets lost in these conversations. And I mean, Yemen has not, you know, we're talking about the government, it has not, you know, responded effectively to environmental threats even before the conflict because, you know, corruption, with governance and all of that. 
And so now you have the conflict and you have state institutions being almost completely destabilized or being governed by militias that don't know, you know, don't care about environmental threats. And the problem is that, you know, most of these issues, like talking about the severe water crisis or, you know, the, the issue of access to lands, you know, farms, and uh, all of these issues are connected to the conflict, right? They are one of the underlying factors that contributed to the emergence of this conflict because at the end, people fight over, you know, access to wealth as well. It's not just power. Power gives you access to wealth. And, you know, in a, an agrarian community like Yemen, you know, state like Yemen, agriculture and access to water is dependent on access to land and so on. And then you have climate change, you know, uh, which does not care about politics, does not care about peace or, or war. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's uh, contributing and uh, exacerbating all of these impacts on the environment, on water, on, you know, desertification, all of that. Um, and unfortunately, no one is addressing these, uh, these threats. And then, on, and then kind of coming from the outside as well, the, the war in Ukraine disrupting global food supplies. Yes, that's a big problem and that it's being felt in Yemen as well, because unfortunately we import, I think, 90% of all the food in Yemen. Um, and so it's a big problem. We're facing food insecurity. Um, and, and, and this shows you how important it is to start focusing on, you know, agriculture on you know, these kind of things. If you were uh, as part of, you know, security conversations. It's not just military, it's also, you know, food security, water security, all of these things. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe one last question uh, in a slightly different direction is that your research fellow at the Yemen Policy Center, which um, I think, uh, as we were talking about earlier, uh, is a really important initiative to try and develop the kind of capacity to do the analysis that, that, that you and others that you're working with are doing. Could you tell us a little bit about the center, what makes it unique? I think at least what I see is unique about a Yemen policy center is that it mostly relies on the, uh, you know, in the expertise and knowledge of Yemeni researchers. Um, and I, I think this is, this has been missing for the longest part uh, uh, of the war in Yemen, which is, you know, the perspectives of Yemeni researchers and Yemeni, you know, uh, policy experts. And this is, this thing is being cultivated within Yemen Policy Center. And this is why I think it's really important to kind of build the capacity of other Yemeni experts and professionals because they tend to show a different narrative to the conflict that is not governed by, you know, whatever frameworks that are, you know, regional or international countries have, uh, you know, we tend to focus on, you know, what Yemenis themselves need, you know, the needs of Yemenis rather than, uh, you know, the things that donors want to see. Um, so, yeah. And that, I think that's an issue that goes well beyond Yemen. I think uh, both across the Middle East and across the global South, I think the need for these kinds of kind of bottom-up, well-grounded research communities seems overwhelmingly obvious. Absolutely. I agree. Well, Hadil, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time uh, to shed some light on these issues. And hopefully we'll have a chance to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure.